Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. We're delighted you're joining us. We're delighted today to have as our guest Mitchell Winnick, who is the president and dean of the Monterey College of Law, which is part of a nonprofit California-accredited school system that includes not only the Monterey College of Law, but also the San Luis Obispo College of Law and the Kern County College of Law. He was one of eight deans invited by the California Supreme Court to an informal meeting in October 2019 to discuss concerns about the California Bar Exam. He's a former chair of the Committee of Bar Examiners Rules Advisory Committee and a former member of the Law School Council representing the California accredited schools. I also want to add, on a personal note, I first got to know Dean Winnick over a decade ago when I was president of the State Bar of California and he appeared before the Committee of Bar Examiners and the State Bar Board of Governors talking about legal education and many of the issues we'll discuss today. And it was clear then that he was a thought leader in those areas and the prominence with which he's moved into other areas and appointments today simply validated the promise that we all sense then. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Well, Howard, thank you very much and thank you for the kind words. As, as you know, I always like to talk favorably about access to legal education. Perhaps today, more than ever before, access to people who understand constitutional law, the rule of law, and access to justice are, are probably more critical today than ever. That's, I think that's right. And today what we're going to talk about is first I'd like to talk about California accredited schools and the special role that they play in providing access to justice. Then we'd like to hear more about your schools, Monterey, San Luis Obispo, Kern County. I want to talk about the bar exam in which you've been so involved in terms of issues of cut score and administration of the exam. And then also talk about the provisional licensure provisions that the Supreme Court of California has now validated and approved. So let's start with the California accredited schools. Tell me what role they play both in legal education and in access to justice issues. Well, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about them. People from outside of California will be completely unfamiliar with the idea of state accredited schools that are separate and apart from the traditional ABA nationally accredited schools. Uh, California's had these type of schools for over a hundred years, so it's not something that's new. They all have a, a common interest, which is they tend to serve local communities. They tend to be evening programs. A few have day programs, but most all of them are evening programs. And they cater to adult learners who are returning to study law to either enhance an existing career or to change careers midstream. Many of our students are second, third, fourth career professionals that have have come to the law. The other key thing that distinguishes California accredited schools from the ABA schools is really the cost, because being part-time schools in small communities that rely on adjunct law professors that are practicing lawyers and, and judges, uh, we're able to provide a full legal education at really about a third to a half of the cost that the large traditional ABA law schools need to charge. 
Yeah, there's so much there. And I'd like to first, the, the opportunity, everyone put themselves in the position of a working adult uh, who cannot simply stop working in order to go a full time to law school, but has the drive and the talent and the ability uh, to become a lawyer. That working adult has few options. Some of the ABA schools have night program, but very few. And so the real option only are the California accredited schools, which can be attended in the evening and also have really led in the area of distance learning. I'd like you to comment what's remarkable is that the ABA seems to be adopting to what the California accredited schools provide uh, in terms of where it's moving to distance learning. Uh, and of course, one of the big problems traditionally in ABA accreditation has been a cost that is now largely unnecessary, which is large physical libraries. So if everyone puts themselves in the position of a working adult wanting to become a lawyer, from terms of cost and access, there, there really is no real alternative to the California accredited schools. Well, Howard, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's not that we're competing with the ABA. I always like to think that we're providing an, a completely separate and alternate path for the type of students that you describe. And to the, to the point on distance ed, uh, you're, you're also correct. In many ways, the ABA, in their very traditional view of legal education, has been going the other direction. Of course, during the pandemic, they've, out of an emergency act, had to open up the opportunity for distance ed. But the California accredited law schools have been actively and actively developing hybrid JD models, which mix some on-site and some online, for three to four years. So, so this is not new to us. Uh, Monterey College of Law is one of only two prior to the pandemic that had been approved and accredited to offer hybrid online JD programs. And I don't think there's any ABA school that has been approved for a full JD program. Uh, many of them have partially uh, adopted online curriculum, but I, I think if there is, there's only one or two out of the 200 and some odd in the whole country. And of course, this goes, when you're talking about this, we're so focused today on questions of inequality and having a population in the bar that mirrors the growing population in the state of California, particularly. And this is an opportunity to help on issues of inequality uh, in, in, in a major kind of way. I have to say, I've, I've attended graduations of California accredited law schools, and I've been, I shouldn't have been astonished, but I was of the range of the student body, of the working adults who, who had become lawyers, graduated, and were going to pass the bar, and did, but also a remarkable number. I've been at graduations, for example, where people with PhDs or MDs uh, decided they also wanted to get a legal education, but simply could not leave the job. They had to do that, but were able to do it at the California accredited school. So it opens remarkable opportunities, which means more lawyers to serve communities because your graduates and the graduates of California accredited law schools, for the most part, when they become lawyers and practice law, serve community needs that are pretty underserved without them. Is, is, uh, isn't that what happens? Well, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, two things happen. First of all, as I mentioned, we tend to serve our local communities. So we look for students of all types who are coming out of the community. And that 
includes the underserved cohorts within our community. So we actively solicit and look for potential lawyers out of those groups. We're able to get them into our school, get them out of our school, and then you and I are going to talk in a bit about the challenge of getting getting them through the bar exam. And as we saw published yesterday, the NALP report, the challenge of getting them employed. Uh, but that's not the case in the small communities like ours. The other aspect that we serve is that much of California is, is rural and remote. And our schools tend to serve those rural and remote areas who, who truly are part of the justice gap that I think starting back when you were president, you were looking at the research of the need to get more lawyers into the underserved rural and remote communities in California. And schools like ours are part of the answer to that. Yeah, very important. Uh, Mitch mentioned uh, something that happened yesterday, article he published in the Daily Journal, as well as an action by the state's Supreme Court adopting provisional licensure. Uh, this podcast is being recorded on October 23rd, uh, 2020, October 22nd, a very important day uh, in California for the state Supreme Court approval of, of the licensure program. And what you've mentioned, I want to talk more about the rural areas and how underserved they are. You know, we used to think of California as being divided north and south. But now the real division is east and west, the coastal communities versus the interior. There are census tracts along the coast that have income levels, average income levels, that are as high as any place in the world. And there are census tracts less than 100 miles away in the San Joaquin Valley that have income levels that are the equivalent to income levels in census tracts in Appalachia. And those are the areas that simply don't have enough lawyers or other elements of the legal system uh, to serve them. Isn't that one of the things we have to deal with? Absolutely. And let me give you the microcosm of that, which would be Monterey County, a classic rural and ag-based county. Uh, people think of Monterey County as Pebble Beach and the Monterey Bay, but it reaches all the way down through the Salinas Valley to Paso Robles. You can drive an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes out of Monterey and still be in Monterey County, but you are in a deep rural agricultural area of California. And it stuns people to know that when you leave Salinas and drive for about an hour and 20 minutes before you get to Paso Robles at the southern part of Monterey County, there is not one practicing full-time lawyer in all of those communities. And there are about a dozen communities you're driving past and driving through. And that's not unique to California. So I suspect, as you, as you said, uh, San Joaquin County and all up and down the Central Valley, you've got large sections of California that are underserved and in many cases unserved by lawyers and the justice system. We're talking about lawyers, but just as it's well worth noting that this has uh, this is true in very dramatic, important, and, and humane areas. I know in Monterey County, uh, when you look at, at the report of, of the COVID cases, 70% has been reported, 70% of the COVID cases in Monterey County are in East Salinas, which is an area that is the home to farm workers, 
predominantly Latino farm workers. And so we see that mirrored in Monterey County. And of course, you have a school in Kern County. You, that's very interesting for you to have the school in Bakersfield in Kern County because it is a truly underserved area. Well, you're right. I'm, I'm smiling. If, if this were a video instead of audio, everyone would see my smile because when I first proposed adding a, an accredited branch of our school, Kern County College of Law over in Bakersfield, my faculty and board over on the coast said, well, well why would we do that? Uh, that doesn't seem to be our typical market. And, and first of all, I needed to remind them I'm from Texas. So going over to Bakersfield in many ways was like going home. Because as I've always said, you could take someone anywhere from West Texas, Amarillo, Midland, Abilene, Lubbock, blindfold them and bring them to Bakersfield and they'd be looking for their favorite bar and favorite Mexican food restaurant. Uh, absolutely. So that it's, it's a very, it's a community that I'm familiar with. But also people don't realize that Kern County has over a million people and it had no law school. They had to drive north of Fresno or south across the grapevine into LA to have access to a legal education or come an hour and a half to the coast where we are. So there's a perfect example of, a, of an enormous area of California with a thriving economy driven by oil and ag and ranching, but had no access to legal education. Yeah. So in terms of access to justice, we've been talking about access to legal education, which the California accredited schools and, and Monterey, San Luis Obispo and Kern schools, which Mitch heads uh, provide access to. But access to legal education is only one part of this, because even after legal education, you have to pass the bar exam. And what's caused this crisis, a crisis that the state, that the Supreme Court is wrestling with, are the remarkable passage rates currently on the bar exam. At the February 2020 bar exam, the overall passage rate was 26.8%. That mirrored other February results. February 2019 was 31.4, and February 2018 was 27.3. Uh, and so around the February bar exam, we've seen passage rates under or about 30%. It's true that in the July administrations, the passage rates overall are about 50%, but when you put it in perspective, no one can feel good about a bar passage rate of 50%. And that started a large discussion about the bar exam and how it ought to be done. So let's start at the beginning. What were the first reactions and the first proposals uh, to deal with the, the low bar passage rates? Well, since 2017, we've been in a dialogue with the California Supreme Court, and, and they're the entity that selects the passing score for the bar exam. And one of the things we've tried to highlight is that it is not that California examinees are doing poorly on the exam. If you look at the actual raw scores, California examinees of all types from all law schools outscore the nation. I mean, it's just a fact. So you would have to say, well, how can that be true? We outscore the nation in performance, but we're at a fraction of the bar pass rate when you compare us to, for example, New York, the most similar state to us. Well, the fact of the matter is that California has a minimum passing score 
and has since the 1970s of 1,440 to pass the exam. New York, with a, a almost identical exam, has a minimum passing score of 1,330. And so therein lies the problem, Howard. You've got examinees who are going through law school successfully, doing well in their raw score on the bar exam, but we had this artificial barrier in California that was artificially set at 1440 instead of somewhere closer to the national median, which is 1350, or even to our most similar large state, New York, 1330. And it's important to, to realize that that passage score has an impact on people's willingness to go into legal education. I mean, once again, if you're a working person in the San Joaquin Valley or elsewhere and you're considering whether you should have the time and expenditure and effort in your life of getting a law degree, if you know that you're going to face these daunting odds of passing the bar exam, significantly more difficult than passing the bar exam in New York, for example, that's going to have an impact on the number of people, especially people from underrepresented communities that are willing to take the first step into going into legal education. And so a large part of this, in terms of the facts that have come out, really have to do with diversity and dealing with inequality issues of representation and access, don't they? That's exactly right. One of the challenges has been that there's been a lack of empirical data. So although we observed these patterns, it was very difficult to pinpoint the scope of the issue. And in fact, in 2017, when the ABA law deans and the California accredited law school deans both filed briefs with the California Supreme Court asking them to reduce the minimum passing score, or the cut score as we call it. What the court said was, really, we need data. You know, we, we hear your plea, we see the effect, but we're the court after all, we could use data. And so that set off a pattern of, over the last three years of a number of studies, there have been seven that have done, and that have been completed in that time. And, and, and now, Mitch, if I, if yeah, I can, sure. pardon me for the interruption, I just want to make clear it's a very important point, though we've been talking about the California accredited schools and your role in them, uh, the presentations to the Supreme Court of California were made on behalf of all deans, not just the California accredited deans, but the ABA deans were just as insistent in terms of the positions that they were urging. This was a joint position of all law schools in California in terms of the cut score. You're exactly right. And that... That actually, I think, had an, an enormous uh, impact with the court because they saw unanimity across all law schools that represented all types of students. And so the, what, what we finally were able to show with the data, it was really quite stunning. So we had 11 years of data to look at. The, the California State Bar provided the data for the research. And what it then showed is over the 11 years of data they provided, that 80% of white examinees eventually pass the exam, but only 53% of black examinees, 70% of Hispanic examinees, and about 71% of Asian examinees. So the disparity between the pass rates by race and ethnicity was really quite startling. And, and 
we then dug to the next level and said, well, you know, one would ask, why is that? Well, the first thing we looked at was, let's just see what the effect of this abnormally high cut score is. And we were able to model what would those same people have uh, resulted in, in their pass rates if we were at New York at 1330, if we were at the national median score at 1350. And what you saw is that, again, given the fact that our examinees in California were already scoring well on the exam, it was the 1440 cut score that had the most dramatic impact on those types of diverse results by race and ethnicity. And that is a very dramatic statement, and it's one that we want to explore in much greater detail and explore further. But first, you know, if you're listening to this, when you're listening to this podcast, you also can obtain MCLE credit for having listened to the podcast through the Daily Journal. And we'll take a break now so that you can hear how that MCLE credit can be obtained. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're back now, and we've been talking about the importance of the cut score, the California bar exam, very low bar passage rates. So I think we've seen as a result of what the, Cali of what the deans did that the California Supreme Court has lowered the cut score from 1440 to 1390. Uh, what effect alone with just going to 1390, what effect does that have in terms of issues of diversity and access? Howard, every step towards the national median helps. Let's just start with that. So going from 1440 to 1390 was beneficial, but the overall impact was fairly minimal. And, and to, to explain why, because one would say logically that doesn't make any sense, but if you think back to high school and remember the bell curves of how grades were handed out in high school exams, uh, the State Bar of California is no different. There's a bell curve of how grades are scored. And 1440 was way, way, way over in the skinny neck of that bell curve of the high scores. 1390 is still in that skinny neck of it. So not that many individuals will pass it. More, not that many more individuals will pass at 1390 than 1400. At 1350, which is the national median, you start to see significant and substantial equalization of the California pass rates to the national standards. Now, I do want to get to the point that, you know, people's eyebrows go up and we've seen comments 
by judges and lawyers and even the communications and publication to the Daily Journal, talking about what does this do to the quality of practice if you lower the cut score. There are positions that people take, well, we've had this 1440 cut score, and if we lower the cut score, whether it's the 1390, to which there was some objection or anything else, what we're going to do is be admitting people who aren't qualified to practice law. What do the data say on that? Well, what the data shows is that's just not true. Uh, our study also looked at six years of disciplinary data across the entire United States. That information came from the American Bar Association's study on disciplinary data. 48 jurisdictions were involved in the study. And what we ended up seeing is there was no statistical relationship at all between the different cut scores across the country. And they ranged from 1280 to 1450. There was no statistical relationship between the cut score used to pass an exam and the disciplinary rates within those jurisdictions. And this occurs, the other context in which this occurs is not only the impact on diversity and inequality and the impact that that has on access to justice in terms of lawyer availability, but those numbers are, in terms of people getting representation are very stark. We know from different studies in different areas involving legal service programs that about three quarters of the people in the United States when they need legal services, simply don't get the legal services. Can't afford it, lawyers not available, don't understand. So we have an existing legal system where we're all committed to providing representation to all in which three quarters of the people in the United States cannot get legal services when they need the legal services. So this ties into opening up in terms of the, of, of, of the diversity of the profession if there is no harm in the lower cut score, uh, the added advantage of providing counsel uh, to people in communities who now have uh, no counsel. And that's one of the serious considerations that, that's part of this, isn't it? Absolutely. And let me go back to, to your point, which I've certainly heard many, many times. Uh, how do we benefit California by dumbing down the exam or dumbing down the, number, the type of lawyers that are going to be licensed? And, and I'll go back to the point I made earlier, which is California examinees coming out of our law schools and those who come to California from other law schools to sit for the exam are already scoring higher than anywhere else in the country. It's not that you're dumbing down the performance. These are already really high performing potential lawyers of all race and ethnicity. It's only that the artificial 1440 and now 1390 cut score screens out at too high a level. So what you've really ended up with is exactly what you just said. This band of attorneys, a, a band from a cohort standpoint, between 1330, for example, in New York and 1390 here in California, who would be qualified to practice law in 40 to 45 of all other jurisdictions, capable, qualified, historically proven to be adequate screening for good lawyers. They're just denied licensure in California, and thus they're unavailable to serve those communities you mentioned. And I think we, we, we should make clear, we talk about this in terms of the California administration of the exam. 
we're not talking about the quality of the administration. California probably has the best administered, not just bar exam, but test any place. I have some personal knowledge of this. Uh, before I was state bar president, uh, three years before that, I was the Board of Governors liaison to the Committee of Bar Examiners. And I attended every meeting of the committee. I attended meetings of the drafting sessions of the essay questions. I attended the meetings where the scores, where the tests were being evaluated and normalized and, and the grades given for various answers were assigned. Uh, California has always been absolutely professional in its administration of the exam. Uh, the one event I'd like to mention the most to show that is several years ago, in, in about 12 or 13 years ago, during an administration of the exam, there was an earthquake 10 minutes before noon that affected people taking the exam in San Bernardino. Now, the state bar went to enormous effort and expense with psychometricians to see what effect that had. And in, a, in fact, there were a group that otherwise would have failed that were given passing scores because the psychometricians determined what the impact on their performance was of the earthquake simply 10 minutes before the end of the exam. So none of this should be taken as a criticism of the state bar's administration of the exam. The issue that's being raised is the policy decision at what the passing level should be. And so what is the argument? I mean, on the face of it, you might say, I know the, the, the court has gone to 1390, but I guess a major question here is, is there really a different level of skill necessary to practice law in New York and in California? Well, that's, you know, you've actually put your finger on it. Wouldn't it be hard for anybody to make the argument that New York, which I think we all would have to agree is, is perhaps the, one of the centers of the world's legal expertise, people come from around the world for corporate and sophisticated opinions from some of the biggest law firms in the world in New York, uh, would we argue that somehow over the past 10 years, New York has been turning out substandard lawyers that are unable to meet that sophisticated work as well as the day-to-day -day work in the small communities of New York? I mean, there's just simply no evidence of that. And New York has been using 1330 as their passing score for decades. So, so your point is well taken that it, even if you don't want to dig into the math and the statistics. Let's just look at the practical reality that's in front of us. You can also look at, at Texas and Illinois and Florida, the other major jurisdictions in the country, and they all use scores between 1330 and 1350 as well. Very different jurisdictions, and yet no one would argue that we've been consistently putting out substandard lawyers into those marketplaces because they use a lower screening score on their bar exam. So where do we stand now on this issue? The Supreme Court has gone to, to 1390. Are there further discussions or presentations to further uh, to affect that number? Well, of course, <laughs> I laugh because it is the California Supreme Court. And as we know, courts get to do whatever they want uh, you know, within reason. But they don't necessarily share with us what their current thinking is. But I can say that in 2017, the court said, bring us additional data and we will consider it. And we have now done that. When they moved the score from 1440 to 1390, they actually used one of the 2017 studies as the basis of picking 1390. That was before the, our most recent study was provided to the court 
only a week ago. So what we hope is that the court will now consider a more, this more sophisticated look that actually had over 85,000 individual examinees as part of the database. We hope that the court will look at that, look at the results, and then say, okay, 1390 made sense based on what we knew then. We asked for additional data. We've received additional data. We've considered it. And perhaps we'll reconsider what the score should be. Well, but we can say in terms of the court, I mean, the court has been remarkably open uh, to hearing this. N normally over the years, the court simply delegated this to the, the committee of bar examiners uh, that was a key element. They technically reported to the state bar, which reported to the Supreme Court. It's the Supreme Court that admits people to practice, not the state bar of California. The state bar, through the committee of bar examiners, sends the list of those who've passed to the Supreme Court about a day or so before the announcement. And then it's the order of the court that admits people to the, to the bar to practice. So it's the court that is the responsible entity. They've been open to this, and their statement that they want to look at the data uh, indicates a, a, a real response about being openness to what information provides. So at a time when there was less information, the court has gone to 1390. And now we have, you have more information. I'd like to hear more about the subsequent studies that you've talked about in terms of how lowering the cut score affects the issue of diversity. If you only go to 1390 or go to other levels. Well, and first, let me tell you that you're, you're exactly right. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I was one of eight law deans that were invited to meet informally with the court to talk about these issues. And there is no doubt that the court is open and sensitive to, to these issues. And this started long before the current uh, sensitivity to Black Lives Matter and other issues of systemic racism. So this has been an ongoing concern of the court, and they've shown uh, great interest in it. So I, I've got nothing but good things to say about how our court here in California has addressed this. Uh, let me talk about the most recent study that we, we just released. And it goes to something you mentioned, which is this idea of a provisional license. Uh, the court just yesterday issued their formal order that approved a provisional licensing process going forward for those who've been disrupted by the COVID-19. Uh, and this, I, I won't go into all the details of it, but it allows graduates within the most recent year to provisionally practice without having to sit for the bar. And then upon passing at 1390, they would then have those provisional restrictions lifted. And during that provisional practice time, they need to be supervised by a qualified licensed attorney. So, so that was a huge recognition of change that needed to happen during this temporary disruption of the pandemic. But what also came up as part of that conversation is, well, if someone's eligible to practice law now at 1390, what about last year? What about the year before? What about the five-year window that the California rules would allow the court to look at as far as, quote, meeting the licensing requirements for admission? Uh, and that has started a conversation of retroactivity. And so what we did 
is we did a we looked at the data. There's approximately forty thousand examinees that sat for the exam within the last five years, which is what's now being talked about. And we saw that depending on the cut score applied to those five years, you get a dramatic difference on how many people would be eligible. So for example, at the 1390 current score, you'd have about 1800 additional examinees who would now be qualified to this proposed provisional licensing. Would that have an impact on the whole diversity issue, simply the 1800? Well, the, if going to 1390, it would increase uh, about 4 to 5% of those who are of the minority examinees. So yes, it would have an impact, but not, not significantly. If you go to, for example, 1350, which is the national median score then over the past five years, the number who would be eligible to participate because of this retroactive program would jump from 1,800 to over 4,000. And now you're talking about a, an increase in the minority examinees during that period of time of, depending on race and ethnicity, somewhere between 12 to 18%. Now that's a significant change. If you go to the New York cut score, the total count goes to over 5,000. And the improvement by ethnicity jumps from to 14 to 20%, depending on the minority and ethnic group. So we can't, I think there are certain, there are sometimes points that are made that we really have to pause and focus on for their importance. What you're saying the studies show is that if in the past five years, California had had the New York cut score rather than the 1440 cut score, but simply had the New York cut score, there would have been a very significant increase in minority attorneys practicing in California. No, no question about it. You're talking about several thousand more, which is not insignificant. And as far as attorneys overall, we're talking about as many as 5,000 more who would be eligible, who scored above the New York, but didn't score above the California 1440. So that's the issue, and, and we want to talk more about provisional licensure, but those numbers are stunning in terms of the impact of the cut score, especially, and I know you do, you put them together with the lack of harm, and you say no evidence of harm if the cut score were lower, but clear evidence of additional lawyers in terms of, 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 access, of, of access to justice uh, to minority communities. And don't forget, realistically, when we're talking about the new lawyers who are coming in from diverse communities, we're really talking about access to justice for their clients. So we, we know how the world works. And people look to people in their community whom they trust. And so the more diverse lawyers we have, the more people will be represented from those communities by lawyers. And, and let me throw out a, a kudo to the state bar, because as, as you well know, over the last several years, they have sponsored some, some really excellent studies of, on access to justice. And, and those studies have proven ex exactly what you just said, that the perception of access to justice goes much, much higher if uh, those in minority communities see that there are lawyers from their community, both 
serving as lawyers, as well as serving as judges. The perception of access, the perception of fairness goes way up. And so it's, it's not as much that I think that the lawyers serving these communities now are, are less skilled. It's just the sense of belongingness, the sense of recognition that there's someone who understands my life story, who understands my you know, uh, country of origin and would be able to give me a fair shake. And it's not just a question of how well the lawyers are doing now serving those communities. In fact, they aren't being served. Yes. Uh, and, and that's what would change by increasing that. We've been talking about these issues in the whole context of access to justice and the bar exam. We've mentioned provisional licensure. There are major issues to continue talking about. This is very much in the news. But of course, there's a great deal else that's in the news legally. The Daily Journal covers a wide variety of subjects. And what we'll now do is take a break to hear about other stories the Daily Journal is currently covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of October 26th. An explosive deposition in a DWP ratepayer lawsuit led to removed class counsel implying a Los Angeles Superior Court judge took kickbacks in the multi-million dollar settlement. San Fernando Valley attorney Michael J. Lipman asked Judge Elihu M. Burrell how he got the money to pay for a new $1.65 million home. The exchange occurred while Libman was being deposed by current class counsel Brian Kabatek about allegations of kickbacks and bribes while Libman was handling the case. A Daily Journal investigation into county assessor's records show Burrell sold his previous home two weeks before, meaning it's likely that the sale funded the purchase. Libman called the assessor's records hearsay and said, quote, the people deserve to learn the truth, end quote. Brian Kabatek said Libman's words were unfounded and a direct violation of the rules of professional conduct. Governor Gavin Newsom filed an amicus brief in support of a death row prisoner's appeal. This is the first time in state history a sitting governor has argued that the death penalty is unfair and unevenly applied to people of color. Newsom has long opposed the death penalty, declaring a moratorium on the practice early last year. The brief argues that without a unanimous decision on whether the death penalty should be applied, juries will likely favor a verdict-driven deliberation instead of an evidence-based one. Newsom has also argued black jurors are underrepresented on capital punishment cases, even if that practice is prohibited in statutes. The Committee on Judicial Ethics Opinions issued new advice that justices are responsible for staff's online comments that violate ethics rules. Committee member and 4th District Court of Appeal Justice Judith L. Haller said the prohibition on justices making public comments on cases extends to their staff. The advice says that appellate justices must instruct staff members to delete any online comments that violate the court's rules on ethics and must follow up to make sure it was deleted. In some cases, justices may instruct their employees to correct or repudiate information that has been viewed or republished by the public. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're now back from the break, and we were talking about the impact of cut score on diversity and access to justice. And so let's go back to where we are. We have it at 1390. Are there proposals, let's put it in this context, we know that the exam supposed to have been given in July was given October 5th and 6th, and it was a, um, uh, it, it was a remote exam and not in-person exam, and we're, we're waiting uh, for the results of that. 
it was still a two-day exam. And by the way, I should mention the exam used to be three days. We went through some of the same sort of discussion when the exam was moved to two days, people objecting and saying, you know, why are we making the exam easier? But there was enormous psychometric data, I mean, conclusive psych psychometric data, that there was no difference in, in, in prediction of quality or outcome by going to two days instead of three days and the third day uh, was simply a, an historic barrier rather than one that was functional in making judgments. But it's interesting because we heard the same kinds of discussions during those judgments about people who themselves had taken a three-day exam. And it's the question, you know, if I went through it, why, why should it now change? But we now have a two-day exam. This was a modified two-day exam uh, in October. Uh, but are we waiting? Do you think the, the, the court and everyone is waiting for the results of that exam to see what the impact of the change to 1390 is before taking any further steps? That's a great question. Uh, I've given some thought to that. Here's what I would say is the balancing of that consideration. On one hand, the court could wait and see how did 1390 do and what were the results by all of the types of groupings we just talked about. On the other hand, the court already has this data. They've got all of the, as I mentioned, there's been seven studies that between 2017 and this week have been presented to the court. They, it's unlikely that there's going to be additional information that will change that understanding because you're talking about 10 years worth of data. So one more bar exam will have an insignificant and negligible impact on how people perform and who performs in certain ways. So I would argue that the court already has the information they need and one more bar exam will not change the arc of the numbers. Yeah, and the other reason I think though people may want to wait for the results of the exam given in October, and not it's not clear whether that would be the same kind of data simply because it was given in a new way. It was given remotely and it has a different configuration instead of 200 questions on the multi-state exam, only 100. Uh, and so whatever that result is, it's not clear that it will be part of the same discussion about the impact of, of the cut score. And so simply because it will be difficult separating out the impact of the remote taking of the exam on the change in the cut score, the existing data is, is, is really important uh, to look at closely. So based on the existing data, what, is there a unified front of the deans now about what should now happen? Well, uh, it, it, you, <laughs> I laugh because you know, Howard, you know, in academia, it's pretty hard to get a unified anything. You know, everybody has an opinion. Uh, but I would say that whereas there's not a unified position on what number should be picked, there's an absolute unified uh, agreement that the reconsideration is necessary and moving towards the national median is important in California. That was, that was clear in 2017, and I can guarantee you that opinion has not changed in the intervening three years. So the fact that the court's looking at these and considering these new, this new information, uh, the deans are, I'm sure, thrilled. I can't speak for all of them, but I'm sure they're thrilled that actual empirical data is being used to consider this new policy. 
And also, it's clear in what we're talking about and what has happened, this is very much an ongoing discussion. Uh, and that's what makes this discussion that we're having so important. It's not as though there was a push for 1390, it's been changed, and now it's, uh, there was a push to, to lower, the court lowered to 1390, and, and now it's over. It's not. This is an ongoing discussion. And part of that ongoing discussion has been the court's approval. You've mentioned it, but I want to explore more what it means and how it works. The court's approval of provisional licensure. Uh, what is that, and how how, how does it work uh, practically? Yeah, that's a very it's a very interesting topic. There has been a discussion for years about whether there should be an alternate licensing pathway, and and there are other countries. The British model uh, use I think they call it articling, um, which is a method by which you complete your legal education and then you practice under the supervision of a lawyer or a judge for a certain period of time, and then they certify that you're ready to be admitted to the bar. And so you've, you have a long history of that methodology being an appropriate way to find whether someone has the skills necessary to be licensed as a lawyer. And that's also available in California. I mean, today there is that alternate. If you can find a lawyer who will educate you and, and certify to what you've done, you can go through that route, and one very famous person is going through that route. <laughs> yes, that, that is true. But that only gets you through the pre-legal education and study part. It doesn't actually get you through the licensing. So you still need to sit yeah. in those folks. You still have to take, you still still have to take, take the, the bar, bar exam. You, just, so, you, you disqualify correct. for the bar So exam. this is really a discussion of whether there should be an alternate pathway that would not include an exam. And so the provisional licensing, although it has been brought forward to respond to the, the COVID pandemic, which with the disruption of individuals being unable to take the exam, or in this case, October 5th and 6th, when they were only given the opportunity of taking an online exam, the, the court said, okay, we get it. There's an entire group of graduates who've been disrupted and it's unfair to make them wait six more months or a year or two years before they can honestly be back in a position to do well on a bar exam. So they created a provisional licensing uh, set of rules that will let those individuals, these current graduates, practice under a provisional license supervised by a lawyer but still within the time frame of two years, sit for the bar exam at 1390. So, so it's a bit of both. It's, it's somewhat like articling, where the new graduates without a license are given a provisional license, and they can, they can perform a broad range of legal services as long as they're being supervised. But they still have to take a bar exam. So now the question will come, and is part of the discussion of, if that proves that over two years someone is being has proven they have the skills to practice for two years, what is the purpose of then making them sit for a bar exam that, keep in mind, is only supposed to measure the minimum competency for the first year practice of law? So it, it seems a bit out of sync to say, I'm signing off that this individual has successfully practiced law for two years, but now they need to go take an exam to see if they have the minimum competency for the first year practice of law. 
And that would involve, I mean, going down that road, I take, might very well involve some reporting requirements. And perhaps people would object to saying, simply because you've been part of the program, you get admitted. But there could be something simpler than taking the bar. When I say simpler, I mean simpler in process than taking the bar exam. There could be reports to a state bar committee on what work has been done, samples of work, statements from the supervising lawyers, what been done, perhaps statement from clients. So essentially, you'd have a work file, a body of work from people who say, look, this person has, has worked functionally and well and uh, should be admitted. And there may be some kind of intermediate uh, provisioning and, and process for doing that, aside from simply automatically being admitted or having to take the I, I think you're right. And, and wouldn't it be interesting to consider uh, that these are not either-or propositions? Let's say a graduate has a choice. They want to go work for legal aid for two years, get, get involved, roll up their sleeves, get busy, practice for two years, and then at the end of those two years, a supervising lawyer or judge would have a specific set of skill measurements that they need to check off and certify that they've personally and professionally observed the success of these skills. And through that process, they're putting that person up for licensure. Alternative, alternatively, Someone could graduate and say, I'm ready to practice law unsupervised right now. I'm going to sit for the bar exam. I'm going to make, make at or above the minimum passing score. And then I'm licensed and I can go right out on my own. Th those are not conflicting ideas, in my opinion. But, you know, they also raise other issues that will have to be explored. I mean, the truth of the matter is there are some graduates that will have easier access to supervision uh, than others. I know law schools are working with their alumni now uh, to set up supervisory relationships, but life is life. And there are people who have pre-existing relationships or family relationships or other historic relationships that will give them easier access to supervision. And that's generally going to be true uh, of people who are not part of minority communities. So there are issues there that will have to be dealt with. And also, I think something that has not been discussed as it should be, is the impact that insurance companies are going to have on this. I mean, that is something that will have to be faced. Uh, what, how will insurance company, malpractice insurance companies, uh, deal with this issue of people who haven't passed the bar exam but are being supervised? Will that impact insurance coverage? And I think that is an issue that will now will be a critical issue in how widely this is adopted and, and how it functions. I think when the companies face the issue, they will be dealt, they will have to face the very important equity and access issues in terms of what decision they make, and I think they'll have to rely on data also. But from what you've said in terms of what we know about uh, performance uh, in other areas, the lower cut score in New York, what we know about the studies of, of disciplinary issues in lower cut scores, there should really be no issue about any risk that occurs because people have had provisional licenses. Yeah, two, two things. One, let me go back to your comment about access to supervisors. Uh, that's a really important point. But I would hope that with the state bar taking the lead and the local bar associations agreeing to step up, that's how we address that. We have a, an affirmative 
agreement by the practicing bench and bar that they believe in this program and they will do their part. They will step up, take on these provisionally licensed lawyers in their local community and and basically take on the role of mentoring. You know, er, early on in the practice of law, that is how you determined whether someone was going to be accepted into the local legal community. And I think that it's somewhat ironic that the pandemic would bring this up, but it it takes us back to what is probably a far better way of determining whether somebody meets the local criteria of practicing law. So you, you have the local lawyers and judges actively involved in mentoring and reviewing the performance of these young young lawyers. Yeah, and it's, this is one of the most important issues in the legal profession today. We, and, and there are other issues that we will inevitably have to talk about down the road, whether there's compensation and provisional licensure, how a variety of labor law provisions that in, have affected uh, volunteers uh, in certain areas and, and apprentices in areas, how that will affect this program. But what we've talked about with, with Mitch Winnick, Dean of the Monterey College of Law, who it is clear is going to be one of the major forces, major leaders, major thinkers in dealing with this entire issue, is the access to justice issues we have to face, the inequality issues we have to face, and the very difficult questions about California continuing to try and maintain a unique status on what it takes to be a lawyer, so different from its other states facing the same kind of legal issues that have made very different decisions. Mitch, can you make a prediction about the future? What do you think is going to happen here? <laughs> I, there, Howard, there must be all kinds of quotes of, of what lawyers say about trying to predict what a judge or a jury will do in a case. Uh, but but I would go out on, on the limb and say that that the, the level of interest that the California Supreme Court has put on this issue, the, their devotion in many, many ways towards you know, equity, justice, diversity, uh, I believe we're going to see them adjust the cut score in response to the data that's been provided to them. Well, the one prediction I think we can make, and I'll be bold in making this prediction, but I have little doubt about it, is that Dean Mitch Winnick is going to continue to be a major force in however this is finally resolved. And for that, he has all our gratitude in taking a leadership position in this. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor to have you and a terrific discussion on a really important subject. Thank you, Howard. My pleasure.